Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On March 30th, leaders from 23 countries, plus the heads of the World Health Organization and the European Union, called for a new international treaty to confront the next pandemic. In a joint statement that was published in major news outlets around the world, the leaders of major European powers were joined by presidents and prime ministers in Africa, Latin America, and Asia to support the idea of a new treaty on pandemic preparedness and response. The op-ed was light on specific details about elements of the treaty, but it did demonstrate that there is significant political momentum around the overall concept of a new international treaty to confront future pandemics. On the line with me to discuss this potential new treaty is Kate Dodson, Vice President for Global Health at the United Nations Foundation. We kick off discussing the contents of this joint op-ed and what it suggests might be included in a pandemic treaty. We also spend a good bit of time discussing how this idea contained in an op-ed might someday become an international agreement. In other words, we discuss process. And I emphasize this now and also mention this in the episode because if there is one thing I have learned covering the United Nations since about 2005, it is that in situations like this, process defines outcomes. In other words, how governments decide how they will negotiate is extremely determinative of the end product. And as Kate Dodson explains, one potential venue for negotiations over a new pandemic treaty could be the World Health Organization's governing body, the World Health Assembly, and we discuss the significance of that venue. And as always, I love hearing from you all. Let me know what you think of this idea of a pandemic treaty. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email. Let me know what's on your mind. And now here is my conversation with Kate Dodson, Vice President for Global Health at the United Nations Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So an op-ed was published earlier this week that laid out the case for 
developing and, and advancing a pandemic treaty. The treaty concept itself would really help address some of the gaps and the key lessons that we've learned from the current pandemic experience, challenges that have vexed the global community on issues related to um, access to countermeasures like vaccines and ensuring they're really seen as a global public good or personal protective equipment, which has really been complicated. Can we better line up our supply chains, our R&D in order to incent and motivate equitable access to these really important tools? The op-ed also talked about the spirit of solidarity and building mutual trust. Those are really important components that we've all, I think, learned hard lessons about when geopolitics gets in the way of a more coherent and cohesive um, response uh, to a novel pandemic like we've had over the past year. Um, We also, I think, in the op-ed saw a vision for what it might look like for more sensitive um, and specific and uh, and comprehensive surveillance. Um, Where do we know that that virus is, that it's popping up? Variants certainly are really concerning right now. And we, as a global community, need to wrap our arms around that um, in a more fulsome way, in a more globally coordinated way. So the treaty concept would address those key gaps um, in what has been challenging our global response so far in this pandemic and try to ensure, as they point out, that, you know, we don't face this kind of a situation again in the future, that we do our best as a global community to mitigate future pandemics. What do we know about who the driving force behind the scenes is of this this process and of and of this idea behind a, a new kind of treaty on pandemic preparedness and response? Sure. So yes, this op-ed was really a bursting onto the scene. It was published in multiple languages and news outlets all over the world. The World Health Organization took advantage of its press conference, um, its biweekly press conference to share more about it. But it actually is a nugget of an idea that first was uh, shared on a public stage back in December when the UN in New York hosted a special COVID summit where uh, many heads of state, ministers all came together to talk about challenges so far in the experience through December and the pandemic and what they hoped for in the future. Obviously, a key focus at that point was on equitable access to vaccines, but Charles Michel, president of the European Council, brought forward this nugget of an idea. Let's come together, take advantage of the huge insights and lessons we've learned from this pandemic so far, and build political support for a treaty rooted in global solidarity that can help improve our collective performance uh, and resilience against pandemics in the future. So he started talking about it in December. It perked the ears of many heads of state, um, many international institutions. The director general of WHO, Dr. Tedros, uh, became particularly keen on the idea. And since December, they've been quietly working to shoulder and build support amongst uh, governments all over the world. And so we saw that kind of manifestation of which leaders are already ready to step up and show support with the 25 heads of state that signed on to it. I'll also note that, you know, some of those heads of state that signed on, for instance, um, the UK, uh, Boris Johnson had 
made um, already kind of a commitment as part of his aspiration for as president of the G7 this year to explore the concept of a treaty in the context of those G7 conversations. So it, this head of steam has been picking up kind of slowly and steadily over the past four or so months, but um, absolutely it's been bursting into the scene this week. So if there is one thing I have learned in my like 17 years of covering the United Nations, it's that in situations like this process, uh, not only influences outcomes, but often dictates outcomes. So like, what do we know about the process and procedure of how this nugget of an idea of an international treaty will be negotiated and potentially turned into a treaty that governments around the world might sign and ratify? It's such a, such an important point and insight, Mark, and uh, agree fully. So what, at the same time as these conversations started, more behind the scenes, although, as I mentioned, uh, President Michel first brought it to the stage in a UN summit in December, um, at the same time as this process has been happening, Member states in Geneva, who um, are, are part of the governing system of the World Health Organization, had started debating and discussing and putting forward proposals about, first and foremost, ways to strengthen WHO, um, especially with regards to its role in pandemic preparedness and response, but even just generally, you know, WHO's role as the global coordinating authority on health. That started way back in the summer. The European Union had put together some proposals and ideas together with France and Germany. The Chilean government had put together ideas. The U.S. government under the Trump administration had put together ideas. So all of these ideas were brewing about how to strengthen and reform WHO. That in and of itself over the course of the fall and winter, um, and really at the World Health Organization Executive Board uh, in January, stimulated a process that the European Union was requested to lead to develop um, a resolution for the World Health Assembly, the the official governance forum of the World Health Organization, which meets in May, to take up a resolution on strengthening WHO and global pandemic preparedness and response. The European Union started drafting that resolution over the course of the last handful of weeks. They're actively debating and discussing it with missions in an intergovernmental negotiating process that's led out of Geneva. And their aspiration is that at the World Health Assembly in May, member states will collectively endorse the concept of what they're calling an open working group. Um, that would become a potential modality for, at minimum, um, discussions, debates, and, and proposals on strengthening WHO in particular, but could be also a tool that member states could take up as a modality for discussing and debating the format of a potential treaty. So. Basically, the idea is to use the World Health Assembly, the governing body of the World Health Organization, which is representative of nearly every government across the world, as the platform upon which to potentially negotiate this treaty. Well, so, yes, I think it remains to be seen whether 
all 195 WHO member states agree that that's the right form and format, but that's the proposal that I see on the table. Mm -hmm. We heard from both Charles Michel and Dr. Tedros earlier this week that they have an aspiration that the World Health Assembly um, will produce a resolution that will kind of create the modalities for future discussion among member states in an intergovernmental format on a treaty. But Mm. there's still a lot of time between now and May and, you know, whether all member states agree to that modality and format, I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I've seen it suggested that a potential model upon which this new treaty might follow is the 2003 Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is an international treaty that was negotiated at the World Health Organization by the World Health Assembly. The treaty basically calls on countries and and requires uh, those countries that ratified it to take certain steps to limit tobacco consumption, do labeling, and uh, try to impose uh, penalties on selling tobacco products to minors, that that sort of thing. Um, And that is like the kind of model uh, for a new, for the, the process upon which to get a new treaty on pandemic preparedness. It could very well be. Um, the the intergovernmental system through the UN has lots of different kinds of instruments that mm-hmm. are at its disposal, conventions, treaties, frameworks, even kind of softer formats like resolutions. And they each have their own process of kind of what it then takes, first of all, through negotiating text and kind of what's at stake, Um how legally binding any of those obligations might be or aspirations might be that member states include in the body of of those texts. But then also the kind of format that it takes to get to um, endorsement and then uh, entry into force, the framework framework convention on tobacco control um, is one of the more rigid kind of intergovernmental instruments Um, that requires governments to take it back to capital and get it kind of endorsed. Um, Mm -hmm. And that then creates legally binding um, um, commitments for for those member states who have ratified. It doesn't obligate all member states to engage. For instance, the United States has never um, endorsed the Framework Mm -hmm. Convention on Tobacco Control. So Um, Only those states who have chosen to participate are the ones that are implicated in a, in a solution like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, speaking about the United States and China, uh, they both countries, the heads of state were not signatories to this op-ed. What does that suggest to you uh, about how much momentum this idea really has? It's a great question. So first it suggests to me that it's early days right? This is a fairly nascent concept. You know, that 25 heads of state, including some really powerful ones and geographically diverse ones have mm-hmm. signed on, is shows um, momentum is building for sure. But we know that there are many global heavyweights and powers that are really savvy about how and when they choose to flex political muscle in intergovernmental forums, you know, the US, China, Russia, India, others who have not yet said whether or how much they'll support an idea of a treaty. Um, What we've heard out of the US in recent days is that they certainly are keen to strengthen 
global pandemic preparedness and response capacities and, you know, and multilateral solutions, whether those are best manifest in the, in, the, in the notion of a treaty, which is a more rigid instrument relative to other kind of solutions that member states may have at their disposal. I think that there's a lot remains to be seen on that. And, you know, 25 needs member states needs to get up to 195 to to really advance um, this concept in a in a in the kind of spirit of global solidarity that um, is inspiring it. So um, it's an, it's early days. I think that's the key thing mm-hmm. that it shows us, um, and and we'll have to see. So maybe I can like play the devil's advocate here and uh, ask you why. Um, such a potential treaty is even a good idea in the first place. I mean, we already have the 2005 International Health Regulations, which were created and adopted by the World Health Organization and World Health Assembly in response to the 2003 SARS pandemic. And the strictures of the 2005 International Health Regulations were not exactly followed to the letter uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic, many countries kind of just pick and choose what parts of those regulations that they um, abided by and which they uh, opted to eschew in uh, response to the pandemic. So if countries aren't even following like the letter of the international law now, why go further and seek a new uh, treaty? So the two don't have to necessarily be mutually exclusive. IHR strengthening is on the table for sure. And many governments have expressed an interest in doing that, including around the kinds of um, accountability that every member state that is signed on to IHRs, which is all 100, or it's 195 member states, right? It includes China, it includes US already. There are ways that those, um, that the provisions under IHR can be strengthened and member states are really closely examining that. But there are also aspects that um, of, you know, global pandemic preparedness and response coordination that are entirely uncovered, not covered by IHR. And that's like the spirit what? of some of the elements like benefits sharing um, and access to data and genomic data, for instance, um, is one aspect. How the how novel countermeasures and other countermeasures like personal protective equipment, the kind of expectations and obligations around sharing as part of global public goods, that's not covered in IHR. So if the treaty focuses squarely on those elements that are not a part of IHR in any way, shape, or form, then you see additionality. And I think that's part of the case that's being made for a treaty. But furthermore, I think the case being made for why a treaty and why now um, that those who are behind it are suggesting is because the political momentum um, has never been higher um, towards this idea and is is now the time to capitalize on that. Um, the world talks a lot about how pandemics become cycles of panic and neglect, right? And we are undoubtedly, if history is any guide, going to find ourselves in some period in the future kind of 
looking back and and have lost the sense of momentum um, and urgency around solutions um, on pandemic preparedness and response. People will go back to their day jobs and feel like, you know, that phew, that's I'm glad that's behind us and we don't have to worry about it. And that's what this treaty, by working on it now, those who are behind it are suggesting now's the time to do it before we get into that neglect period. And frankly, so that hopefully we never get into that neglect period. There are other, I think, instruments and processes um, in addition to IHR that can and should also be strengthened. Um, and, you know, a close eye on some of the other existing instrumentality that we have from anything from social protection and human rights, you know, protections to um, the way financing is, um, um, you know, pulled through the system in the context of preparedness and response at an international level, there's lots of other ways that some of these issues can be addressed and should be addressed in addition to the pursuit of a treaty. Lastly, in the coming weeks and and months, what will you be looking towards to suggest to you how this treaty process is evolving? Like, what are some of the key inflection points? So foremost among them is that uh, an independent body called the Independent Panel on Pandemic Preparedness and Response, which is co-chaired by two ex-heads of state, Helen Clark from New Zealand and Ellen Johnson certainly from Liberia, will come out with their set of recommendations in early May in advance of the World Health Assembly, uh, which I had already mentioned convenes in late May. And those, we'll see how, first of all, the content of their findings, I think, will be really important because they're meant to illuminate both the gaps in pandemic response for this current pandemic, but also key recommendations on how to strengthen global cooperation on on preparedness and response for the future. How those recommendations are received, I think, will tell us a little bit more about the political appetite and temperature around the notion of a treaty in particular, or at minimum, the underlying issues that this treaty is designed to, um, envisioned, I should say, to address. Um, Obviously, the World Health Assembly later in May is a key point as well. The G7 heads of state meet in June. And as I had already mentioned previously, um, Prime Minister Johnson has expressed um, an aspiration that it could consider and take up um, concept and notion and get behind the notion of a treaty. So this spring will certainly tell us a lot. Um, but obviously it's going to be a, a hard road to sow to get from this kind of momentum building into the hard slog of negotiating in an intergovernmental forum what the contours and contents of a treaty instrument or some other related instrument might entail. So we've got a long road ahead of us for sure. Uh, well, Kate, thank you so much for your time. This You were the perfect person to interview about this. This was exactly what I was hoping to, to learn. Oh, well, Mark, it's always a pleasure to connect with you. And um, thanks so much for having me on. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Kate. That was very helpful. And uh, it's just kind of interesting to see how this all shakes out in the coming months. May is a key month always on the global health calendar with the annual World Health Assembly. And it will be really interesting to see what comes of this idea 
of a treaty at that World Health Assembly in May. So I'll be following it closely and we'll certainly report back. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.